Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Welcome for this episode of the Global Marketing Podcast, and I'm very excited to welcome today's guest because she's navigated something I might have done in, a, in an alter career move, but, uh, but haven't, so I want to hear more about her experience. So today we welcome Grace Preston, who is Director of International Sales at Optum. And as a woman, she's successfully navigated an international sales career around the world. It's hard enough to navigate across cultures, let alone as a woman traveling alone. So excited to hear more about this. Welcome, Grace. Thank you, Wendy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm thrilled. So tell me a little bit more about what you do, and then we'll dig into uh, some of the fun trips you've had. Okay, great. So I am a career international sales and business development professional. Um, I've been doing this type of role probably, I'm dating myself now, for more than 20 years um, with a variety of companies, um, technology companies and medical device, healthcare technology companies. Currently, I'm with Optum. I've been with Optum for a little over four years. And uh, we manufacture flexible fiber optic endoscopes that are used in two applications, um, primarily two applications, healthcare. So we make um, endoscopes for ear, nose, and throat doctors, ENT doctors. And then we also make scopes, endoscopes, flexible endoscopes for security applications so that folks at custom border patrol points can actually look into your car or look into hidden spaces when they're suspecting that there might be some drugs or some type of contraband hidden. So we sell to those types of professionals um, around the world as well. Um, so border patrol, law enforcement, military applications, that type of thing. Completely different markets, but both are really exciting. <laughs> yeah, they are. So I'm trying to imagine a sales call. It's either with policemen or m police personnel, um, military, hospital administrators. I mean, you're all over the place. Talk to me about the, the buyer's journey and where you come in at the, the sales point to talk to them and who you're talking to. Sure. So um, on both sides of the business, we really try to find some type of local representation. So a distributor, a reseller, or some type of partner in a country. Because as a small Massachusetts company, it's really impossible to knock on the doors of doctors or hospitals or border patrol professionals around the world. So we always look to partner with sort of a best in breed type of company in market that has relationships in place that know how to navigate either the hospital system, the healthcare system, or the government channels to get through to some type of government agency that would purchase our security equipment. So that's first and foremost. So that's part of my role is to actually find who, who the best people in each country is to partner with. And then once I have them in place, then I'm going to help them generate interest in our product and then help them pull it, pull it through. So with two different markets, the sales process is completely different. Um, on the healthcare side, it's sort of transactional, but not really. Um, I, get more, I, I get more involved on the healthcare side when there's a large opportunity or we're dealing with maybe a public hospital system that wants to buy multiple units. So then I would work with my partner um, in terms of maybe making a sales presentation or working with them somehow to sort of make sure that we're either in um, specified into a grant or something like that. Mm -hmm. The more complicated sales cycle is on the, on the healthcare, sorry, on the security side, because on the security side, we're always dealing with some type of government agency, whether it's border patrol, police force, law enforcement, military. So it's always going to go through some type of government agency. And that tends to be a really long sales cycle tends to be um, more strategic. So our partner might make some introductions, kind of plant the seeds in our product, 
um, and then try to get our product specified in. And then at some point, there might be some type of high-level presentation where I would come in and work with my partner to you know, make a presentation to that agency or some of the decision makers. Um, so uh, you know, on that end of the business, I've been to some really interesting places around the world. Um, so doing presentations and talking to some very interesting um, folks, <laughs> if you will, you know, so, um, so both sides of the business are really good. And, you know, what we find is when we're dealing with countries where they're making a spend on healthcare, they're almost always making a, a spend in security as well. So it's kind of an interesting kind of dynamic there. Okay, so you talked about finding distributors as a small Massachusetts company. So if you're, you know, so say we have a listener here who owns a small company and they want to go international and they go, ooh, distributor. Now, I've heard all sorts of stories about distributors. You've got to be careful in picking them because you really are forming a relationship and it can be hard to break off. I've heard people picking a big successful distributor that, um, you know, they take your product on and you end up being a smaller one and they don't give it any attention. I've heard of uh, people letting their distributor handle the translations and they just don't get it right. So it causes a major mislaunch in a company that they've had to restart all over. So this is what you're doing is picking distributors. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I like to tell folks, take your time. It's like getting into a marriage. You want, you want to, to, to court, you know, have that courting period be, you know, don't rush it. You want to make sure that this is the person that you want to marry because the divorce can be really ugly in certain countries. And, you know, by the time you want to get divorced, you've lost a lot of opportunity in a country or something like that. So take your time, do your diligence. Um, if somebody comes to you and promises you the world, you know, trust, but verify, um, go back and do your own research. Um, don't take their word for it. Don't take their word that they're, they're the only company in that market that can open the doors. Um, there are um, ways within um, the state of Massachusetts or New Hampshire or Vermont or whatever state that you're in um, with an office of either uh, economic development usually has some type of international um, commerce piece to it. So they can assist you on the state level, but also on the federal level, um, the U.S. Department of Commerce can assist with some um, research. Um, you can pay to have some services done in terms of um, doing an international partner search, or when in better times when you can actually visit a country, they could set up um, what they call gold key matchmaking services, where they do most of the work on the ground. Um, you give them a profile of a company that you're looking, the ideal profile, sort of like a match.com for companies, <laughs> uh, where or a Tinder for companies, um, where you say, okay, I want to meet Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome. Well, they might come back to not with the perfect person, but somebody that might be close to them. And then you could kind of like interview them and see if there's any synergies with, with, with between your company and their company. So, what kinds of questions do you ask if you're interviewing them? So what I look, what I particularly look for is um, a real company, not just a one person operation. Um, I like to see a company that has um, a sales force, a company that has, and it doesn't have to be big, but just, you know, a company that has a couple salespeople maybe, possibly some technical people. Um, what other products are they, are they distributing? Are they distributing products that are complementary to my product? So, you know, particularly on the healthcare side, I might look at um, a company that sells audiology type of equipment because we're selling to ear, nose, and throat doctors. So, you know, do they sell, um, you know, stuff for hearing aids or um, an ENT doctor? Does he sell other type of um, uh, sinus uh, or nasal type of equipment, surgical instruments. Sometimes we look for um, doctors that, um, distributors that resell um, surgical equipment for head and neck. So you want to look for something that's complementary. So, you know, I'm not going to find a distributor in a country that sells, I don't know, cement mixing equipment to distribute my product into healthcare because there's no synergy there. So mm -hmm. I'd always I'd always look for something that um, even if it's a even if it's a big company I would always look for somebody that has complementary products and all so that way they have that relationship already in place they're already calling on the customer base that I want to get into so um, so those are some of the things that I would ask for um, you know that's kind of starting point 
Um, and then how are you talking to these people? Are they mostly speaking English or? Yeah, I think, I think in, in most areas of the world, there's, you know, English is sort of the business language, even within Europe. I mean, you look at somebody in Spain that might be dealing with somebody in Norway, they're not going to speak Norwegian, they're not going to speak Spanish, they're going to speak English between the two of them. So, you know, English is accepted. I don't take that for granted. Um, but in most markets that we deal with, in most um, advanced markets, when you're dealing with an advanced product, um, most people do speak English. The exception to that would probably be Latin America, where you do find um, a lot of folks just don't have that English capability. But it's changing. I think, you know, as, as we're coming into more of a global market, English is the global language. Um, you know, again, I wouldn't take it for granted and I wouldn't expect mm -hmm. it. So, but, you know, um, I, I think, you know, I've done okay so far, but there are some times where it is a challenge. And what do you do in those situations when the people don't speak English and you don't speak their language? So I, I, right now I deal with a couple uh, of my partners that have limited English capacity. So a lot of times we will write back and forth in emails um, mm -hmm. in our own language. And, you know, unfortunately, um, we do use some Google Translate. Um, yeah, that's a perfect just, use for it. You get the gist <laughs> of what they're trying to ask. Yeah. Yes. You, you just kind of get the gist. It doesn't have to be exact. Mm -hmm. um, in those cases, you know, um, I, I think <laughs> I've, I've adapted pretty well that I can walk into a room with a lot of people speaking a foreign language and kind of get the gist of the conversation. I don't know how I can do it, but I do it um, just by through body language and see kind of following the conversation and, and seeing what's going on. I kind of sometimes, while I don't understand the actual talk, I kind of understand where the conversation is going. Um, and I don't know how I got that ability. Isn't that interesting? Now, did you always have that? Or do you think it's been fine-tuned over the 20 years of being in international sales? Um, I think it's, it's sort of been there with me because I don't really speak another language. Although I think um, I may have mentioned in the past to you, um, I grew up, um, both my parents were Lebanese. So I grew up in a mix of Arabic, English, and French. Although I speak none of those languages, but I can understand Arabic quite well. Um, so when, you know, I think I just kind of am in tuned to accents. I'm in tuned to um, foreign language, um, even though I don't understand it. I don't, I, I, you would think I would have a, be positioned better to, to take on a second language, but for some reason that wiring didn't transfer through <laughs> to me. So um, but I can understand Arabic, although I don't speak it very well. That's, it's, so why do you think you, it didn't transfer over to you? Because there's so many, there's so much to that. Like here you understand Arabic and you understand French, but you don't speak it. But it's given you the ability to kind of understand or relate to other languages. I think, and again, going back to my childhood, I think a lot of it had to do with that because when, when um, my parents immigrated, they wanted, to, they wanted to integrate in society versus segregate. So mm -hmm. while we spoke, you know, we, at that time, we didn't want to be different. We wanted to be American. Right. So even though my parents at home would sometimes talk Arabic or French, you know, we wanted to be American. So we kind of, I don't want to say shunned our culture, but we wanted to be American. We didn't want to be different. Now I regret that because I wish that my parents had taught me how to speak Arabic um, uh, much better and understand things much better. But what I find as I spend more and more time, if I spend an extended period of time in the Middle East, it just comes back to me like that. Yeah. Now that's very interesting that you say that because I was guessing there was something there rather than not having the ability for languages because you understand it. Some people will just say, I don't have the ability. They can't understand it. They can't speak it. I think that's different than what you were saying about. So, and it used to be, we were the melting pot in the United States where people did come and say, I, you know, I want to be American. I'm going to speak English, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, people now are saying, no, I want to keep my 
culture and language and they're teaching their children how to speak and it's such a benefit when the children learn that language because then they can go off to international business and really speak it so there's not the psychological component of push that away right so, right yeah and i and i think i think that also having said that i think that is why I'm more open to other cultures because I grew up in another culture. Right. So I think from that perspective, I've always been open to other cultures because I came from another culture. Yes. Yes. Okay. So now here you are in a medical field and security field and working with distributors. So you know what's coming here. It's a male dominated industry and world there. And here you are you know, traveling by yourself, going over to build these relationships. Tell me about what that's like and how you've been able to successfully navigate that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's that fine line um, to having a strong presence, but not being too pushy. So, you know, I've tried, always tried to kind of walk that line. Um, you do have to be a little more present as a woman. Um, you have to be a little more forceful as a woman um, to get your point across and, and also to show that, hey, don't judge me for, for my gender, judge me for what I know and what I can bring to you. So I think some, in some cultures, uh, there still is um, a perception that, you know, men know more. Um, I've often gone into meetings um, with another um, colleague that is male and even though I'm the one that knows everything about the situation and knows how to help this partner, sometimes they, they tend to refer to the, the man more than I do, than myself. So sometimes that becomes a challenge. Um, but I think, you know, that comes in time. I think when you put the dedication in, when you work with a partner, um, the, the gender falls away and, um, you know, you, you've proven yourself. And it, it is... And it's sometimes it's a little bit frustrating because it is, you do have to prove yourself. And whereas I think, you know, most men walk into a situation, they don't have to prove themselves. So um, there are some challenges. There are some, in particularly sometimes in some of the Latin American countries, there's that, um, you know, that machismo feeling, I think, um, or attitude. So I think sometimes there's the knee jerk reaction to want to go, around me and go to the next uh, person or colleague that might be uh, male to ask the questions. So again, that takes time to overcome that and to, to show that you're willing to work for them and you're willing to um, help them. Um, I think most people think sometimes I would get it worse in the Middle East. And actually I don't. Um, in the Middle East, it tends to be, it's interest, It's an interesting dynamic there because Anybody in any decision-making capacity in a, in a large part of the Middle East is Western educated. And so they understand Western values. So you have that. And often when I go to the Middle East, Middle East countries love American products. So when I go to the Middle East, I'm not a woman. I'm a representative of an American company. And they embrace that. That is fascinating. So, so an American women, woman coming over, yet the women in their country may be treated differently. Since you're an American coming in, you're in a different, you're, you might not be subject to the same culture or treatment. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, or attitude, I would probably say attitude. Um, you know, I, it's, it's changing. I think, again, with sort of globalization, we're in a world economy now. I think that is changing. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there is, I think in some areas in the Middle East, there's, there are still some obstacles as a woman. But again, when I, I've never had any issues traveling in that part of the world. Um, it could be because, again, from a cultural, you know, growing up perspective, I understand that culture a little more. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've, you know, I've never had any issues and I've traveled to Saudi Arabia. Uh, I go to UAE quite often, Kuwait, um, Qatar. So I've never really had 
too many issues. I think Saudi Arabia is probably the worst of them, um, but that's changing as well. So, um, you know, I think, I think there's a level of respect just because something's different doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. If it's different than our culture, you know, okay, it's different, but you have to respect that. And I think going into these areas um, with a great deal of respect, just, you know, you'll, it, it pays back. So if you, you know, if you kind of go into a lot of these situations as a loud American, disrespectful the culture, just because, you know, you're American and this is the way you do things and you disregard the, the local culture um, and, and disrespect it, um, I think you're not going to get far. Um, mm -hmm. Respect is number one priority. Okay. Okay, which which I've heard that before with different people that I've interviewed is you go in with respect and um, curiosity is another word that I hear frequently. Correct. Yeah. Hmm. I, I and I'm very curious. I always I always ask questions and you know I want to know what you know I want to know things. So you know and again that develops that relationship um, internationally. It's really important. It's not like doing business with the next state. It's your you're building a relationship and, and internationally people buy and um, collaborate with people that they like, know, and trust. And that piece is really important. And so how do you build that? Time. And so when you say time, because earlier you said it takes time, don't rush into it. So are you talking six months, three, six months, nine months, a year, five years? I know it's, it's hard to put a number it, on it. It's hard to put a number on it. I mean, it's sort of like saying, well, you know, how fast can you fall in love, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Good point. It, it's hard to put a number on it, but, you know, you want to make sure that you do your due diligence. And, and again, just because somebody comes to you and says, you know, they can deliver, you know, the world to you, well, don't take it at face value, you know, and if it's meant to be, you know, it's going to be a year from now or six months from now. You know, if, if somebody tries to push you to do something quickly, that's a red flag to me. And, you know, that's where I would back off. And if somebody says, you know, you have to make a decision now or not, never, that's, oh. where I would, that's where I would back off and say, see you later. So I hate that in any kind of business negotiation or sales. I'm like, no, I don't have to make a decision right now. And the more you push, the more I'm going to back off. I've walked yeah. away from, you know, people that have promised me the world. And I'm like, yep, see you later. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, let's go back to, you were talking about um, English as the global language and you can speak with a lot of people and I get it on email. It takes too long and you're trying to get it. You're going to put it in Google Translate and get the gist of it so you know what you're communicating about. Yet I would imagine that the people who are on the ground in the country that are using the fiber optic scopes, either as a doctor in security, they may not be fully English speaking. So Absolutely. the ultimate clients and users. So how do you communicate to them how to use it appropriately? Yeah, I mean, again, and that's one of the reasons why we look for representation in country because we are not, um, I would say 90% of my business, I am not customer facing. Mm -hmm. So that is the other reason why you find partners in country because they're the ones that are customer facing. So they're gonna 100% of the time be customer facing, dealing directly with your end users. They have the local language, they understand the market, um, they understand the needs of the market. Um, so there's that piece. Because we deal in healthcare, there is a regulatory piece for us. Mm -hmm. um, so each country, um, almost each country has an equivalent of FDA, our US FDA. And there are requirements under those um, uh, regulatory um, in which we have to provide uh, instruction manuals in local languages. Um, you know, so, so there is a piece to that that we have to adhere to if we want to do business in, in certain areas. For instance, um, you know, we, we are compliant on the medical side in the EU. So we have to make sure that our manuals are translated into, you know, the local languages. Mostly, I, 
we can get away with sort of the, the major languages, which is what we do. But um, the regulatory is changing and there will probably be stricter uh, requirements for us to provide um, instruction manuals in local languages. It's not as bad as, you know, I don't know if you get, you know, you buy something and you open up the instruction manual and it's like this big with like 50 million languages that are, you know, in teeny tiny print that none of us can read. So it's not that bad, but you know, we try to, we try to capture the majority of it. So, you know, the bigger markets, we have to be in Spanish. We have to be in French. Um, we have to, we, we have a large presence in Italy. So we have an Italian instruction manual because again, a lot of the people that use, you know, may not be English speaking. But again, we rely on that local partner to inform us or to, to tell us either, you know, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And also they're, they're the ones that are communicating to our end users, um, not myself. How many countries are you in and how many languages do you translate into? Um, I would guesstimate across both product lines, we're probably in 30 plus countries. Hmm. Um, and I would say languages, though, we probably have five languages total. So you do Spanish, um, French, Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got, um, I think we have Swedish, actually. Hmm. Um, and again, that's required on the medical side. It's not a requirement on the security side. And, you know, we, we have... We have won some uh, large projects that required us to translate into certain languages, and then we were forced to do it. Um, we do have, on the security side, we do have a manual in Arabic. But, um, you know, again, uh, a, lot of them, a lot of that side of the business will accept English. Is the product easy enough to use where somebody wouldn't need a manual, or is there training that goes with it? Um, there is a combination of both <laughs> if if yeah. you ask me i think it's easy enough but again i think the the end users want to have some type of reassurance that they're going to use the product properly on the medical side we again we would rely on our distributor our in-country partner again we would we rely on our local partner to do any type of uh on the healthcare side to do any type of training um and again they would do it in local language to um, the medical professionals if needed, then that's part of their value add. So they could wrap, you know, they could, they could profit off that if they wanted to add training services, whatever they could charge for that as well. Um, on the security side, same thing. We rely on our partners. It's probably not as critical than as on the healthcare side, because it's not um, a regulatory requirement. What happens if there's a liability on the training or the user manuals, if somebody uses your product wrong? Does that come back to you or does it come to the distributor? Um, it, on, it, on the medical side, it goes back to the distributor because they're the ones that are, because our transaction is with the distributor um, and then the distributor is reselling to the customer. So, um, but of course we would support our distributor in any way we can. Right, um, of course, yeah. Knock on wood, we've never had an issue. Um, on the security side, um, because we do deal with larger opportunities, and again, we're dealing with government agencies, um, a lot of times we will build in training into the opportunity. So, you know, it would be up to the distributor if they want to have somebody from Optum present to do training. And um, we've been successful on that, and I've done quite a few trainings on the security side of the business. Okay. And then uh, you mentioned that your company handles the translation. Is that because when you said we translate into five languages, is that your, is that Optum or is that the distributors? Um, it, it's Optum because we, if we have to translate for regulatory, then we have to handle, we, it, the, the translation becomes sort of our property. Okay. Okay. So regulatory is requiring that the manufacturer translates correct okay okay interesting so when you started first you know we're going to jump into more back into the emotional side of it and and this conversation is extremely valuable for anybody that's in a regulated industry or thinking about going international because now you've heard of how the, the your relationship with the distributor 
can can play out and that like i said there's so many different kinds of relationships there so when you first like if you could take your yourself back to when you were first doing international business what were some of your major fears um because i know a lot of people from the u.s who think about doing international are afraid of it and so it'd be great to have your fears and and what you think about those now i i think the biggest fear is that you know, um, companies are too afraid to go after the opportunity and just say, it's too difficult. We're not going to do it. So I always have that fear, you know, no matter how much I, I add to the bottom line that, you know, my boss is going to say, you know what, we've decided we won't, don't want to do that anymore. And we're going to close up shop. So it, it's, it's not easy, but if you stick to it, you can turn sort of an incremental, I don't want to say side business, but incremental revenue into a good portion of the company's revenue. Oh, so you've seen that, that it's been a small portion, but over time it can grow into the majority of the revenue for a company. Yes. And, And I think as markets tend to change. If there's a downturn in the U.S. market, then you're going to turn to other markets to help fill in those gaps. And I've seen that over and over again. That's what the statistics show. So it's so great to hear about that from your experience. I mean, I've heard it. If your, your, your home market, your domestic market goes weak, then you can lean on your international and that companies make more money, higher profits, pay higher salaries. So you've seen it, you've lived it. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think there are challenges with sticking to one market. You know, you're going to, you're going to have competition, you're going to have saturation. And then what do you do if there's a downturn in that market? So there's reasons to look outside. Um, It's not easy. It takes longer. There's a little more effort. Um, Obviously in a lot of markets, there's more paperwork and more regulatory sometimes. So again, it's not easy, but you know, if you're looking to make a quick buck, the international markets are not for you. If you're lo- looking for long-term growth and, and a higher company valuation, international markets are the way to go. Okay, that is excellent to hear, excellent. Now, okay, so somebody hears this and they decide they're gonna start doing it. You talked about government supports that you can go uh, get support in picking a distributor. And um, I think that you've also had step grants to help. So can you talk about, you know, if a company wants to do this, what's the first step? And then also talk about what government supports there are? So, I, yeah, I mean, I think the first place to probably start is to contact somebody on the state level. Um, you know, again, each economic, some international aspect to it. So that's always a great place to start to to reach out to those folks within your state and say, you know, I'm a small company. I'm looking um, to to have some outreach into other markets. I really don't know how to start. Um, Also, Small Business Administration often has um, uh, programs and promotions that that can help. Through the SBA, they've um, uh, funded through the SBA and through other avenues, this STEP grant. The STEP grant is the state trade, I always get this wrong, state trade expansion promotion or state trade export promotion. It's a grant basically to help with your, your exports is how I always tell people. I can, I never know what, what STEP stands for, but if you search for STEP grant and then your state, it'll take you right to it or on our website, which is rapporttranslations.com. If you go to resources, you can look up and read all about it and get links to, to go where it is. But it's, it is no matter what it spells out to and you've, you, you, now you've told me. Um, you can find it. So go ahead. So each, each state basically petitions to get a certain chunk of money from the federal government to help with export promotion, which falls, which the intent is to help local companies grow economic development. So they get this chunk of money and then they, they decide they're going to divvy it up among companies and they're going to have certain parameters as to how they're going to divvy it up and you have to apply for it. 
So, um, you know, we're a Massachusetts company, so we, we work with um, the, uh, the um, Massachusetts Office of International Trade, Moiti, and um, the um, Massachusetts, the MS, <laughs> I always get the acronyms wrong, um, the State Economic Development Department, S SBDC, SBDC, um, yes. Thank you. Yeah. I'm trying to remember them all. <laughs> um, I know the people. I don't know all the, 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 the agencies. And then they also work in conjunction with their federal partners. So they, so you apply for this grant and you tell them why you need this grant and what you're going to do with the money and how it's going to help your company and how it's going to help your company generate revenue, generate jobs. And then they evaluate that, your application. And they say, okay, you know, we agree with what you're saying. So they'll, they'll basically say, okay, here's some money for you, a grant for you to go out and develop um, those programs that you told us about. Now there is a matching component in the state of Massachusetts. We are not new to export. So our matching component is 40%. So whatever they give us, we have to match 40% of the investment. Um, if you're new to export, the match is lower. Um, and I actually, because we're not new to export, I don't know what that is, but it's much lower than 40%. So for, for a small company like Optum, um, it, and I have limited resources internationally, like many small companies, um, the company is very focused on the U.S. market. And, and I always feel like I'm picking off the fringes of, you know, the U.S. market to do what I need to do to grow my market. So I don't have a big marketing budget. So, so that, that grant is really critical for me to kind of make some uh, over times the grant could be used for trade shows. Um, and that's where really what I, where I would focus because I didn't have a trade show budget. So, you know, rather than asking my boss for $10,000 to participate in a trade show halfway around the world, you know, I could cover a good portion of it with this grant. So, um, you know, trade shows were a big thing. Um, also, you could do um, some of these programs that I talked about under the U.S. Commerce Department, the gold key matchmaking. Um, that's not taking place because of COVID because you can't really fly to another country and meet with other companies. But there is a virtual component of that, an international partner search that they'll do virtually as well. You could use that funding. They offer other programs like um, you could uh, pay to have a background check. If you're, you know, if you've got um, a company that you're, you're looking to partner with and, you know, they're offering big numbers and you, you're kind of 75% there, but you're not 100% there, you could, you could pay the Commerce Department to, to, to do a background check on that company and look at their financials, dig in a little deeper. And they have access to information that you don't necessarily have. So there's, you know, you could do advertising, you could do translations. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things w that are kind of within the parameters of that grant, but you have to have a plan. You have to go on your application. You, you have to say, this is what I'm going to use it for, and this is why I want to use it for, and this is going to be my expected outcome of why I want to use it. So, you know, it's, it's the what, it's the why, and, you know, where's it going to get you? So we, we've been very lucky in that um, we have been um, awarded the grant um, for the last three years. Um, for me, it's critical. Um, I have done trade shows. I have done gold key matchmaking services with it. Um, I've had to retool. Well, I've done translations as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and things like that. I've had to retool some of the, the things um, moving forward because obviously we're not out traveling. So I'm doing a lot more actually local advertising. I'm going back to old school and I'm doing advertising. Um, <laughs> and, the, and the intent is really just to make sure that we're staying you know, in front of folks. We're just kind of saying, hey, we're still here. Um, we're still offering great product. We still manufacture in the US you know, don't forget about us so that when things get better, we're going to be sort of at the, you know, at the, at the front of everybody's thinking. Right, right. Thank you so much for explaining all the different places that you can use a step grant because it's one of the best kept secrets for companies that might be interested in going international. And during this COVID shutdown, they did uh, re realize that less people were using it for trade shows. So they've now authorized that um, you can redo your website because people are, you know, thinking, oh, I can translate my website, but oh, it needs to be redone before I can translate it. And so they've authorized some grant funding for doing that. So we've put together some packages 
on that. And it's a tremendous opportunity because we see people that are pulling in international business uh, into their website here. And if they can connect with the people. Yeah. And that, I, and I neglected the website. So that is a big, that's a big, um, I've been fighting for that for a long time because that is where uh, most international folks, you know, find us when, if they, if they're looking for something new. So um, we are in the midst of rebuilding our website from scratch and a large component of that will be to internationalize our website. And I do have um, that activity within my step grant as well. Oh, excellent. I am so glad to hear that because I'm hearing more and more people bringing in business through their website. And I have a feeling that it won't take away jobs from people like you who are used to carrying the bag. Talk to me about how it is traveling. I mean, you, you must have so many passport stamps and know how to pack, but it's also got to be really hard to be an international road warrior. Yeah, I sort of, I tell people I have a totally split personality because when I'm home, I nest. Yes. And when I'm, when I'm gone, I embrace it. So I have this, this, you know, half of me is this nesting. I want to be home. And the other half of me has tremendous wanderlust. So it's the really, it's really weird. I can't describe it to people. <laughs> so I thought I would hate being home for this amount of time, but it, actually I've embraced it. Um, it's hmm. been good, but um, you know, I'm ready. I will be ready to get out on the road. I love that. Um, I guess, action of being with people and being out and selling and working with different cultures. Um, I have become a professional at sleeping anywhere, anytime. <laughs> ah, oh, that is very handy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it can be really trying to be on the road constantly. Um, I average in the last uh, several years, I've averaged probably half my time away. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. I could be home for three months and then, you know, gone pretty solid for three months. So um, I try now to plan my trips so that it's not erratic, so that there's purpose to, to when I go out, how I go out, who I'm meeting with, that type of thing. And I do try to pack my schedule because sometimes, I'm, you know, I, I know that I won't be in this area, you know, tomorrow. So I have to make sure that I'm using my time wisely. Um, and um, give me an example of how you do that. You know, if you're talking to a, an executive that is going to start doing this traveling, I mean, how do you pack your schedule and how do you think about which countries you're going to when, and how to coordinate continents? So what, what I try to do is I always try to um, have one or two meetings that are going to anchor me. So let's say um, I have a meeting in Denmark um, and then, um, or there's a need for me to be in Denmark. From Denmark, I would say, okay, you know, where haven't I been to see somebody recently or what else can I add on this? Well, it's pretty easy to get from Denmark to Sweden. So I would ring up, you know, my folks in Sweden and say, hey, I'm going to be kind of in the area. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit of juggling. So you know, you kind of hope everything falls into place. So once I have at least two meetings in the area, then I know I can kind of keep going. So, you know, from Denmark, I might be, well, you know, I know I have to fly through, say, Frankfurt to get home. You know, is there an opportunity for me to do something in Germany? So then I would kind of look at that. So again, I try to, you know, I, tr I don't, I'm at the point in my career where having downtime on the road, it just, I'm done. I just want, you know, right. I want to maximize my schedule. Um, a lot of times when I go to the Middle East, um, you know, I, that's another area where it would cost me a lot of money to go back and forth. So if I'm going to be right. in the Middle East for something, I try to wrap stuff around it. Um, so if I'm going to Dubai, I have a distributor in Beirut. So does it make sense? You know, do they have, you know, I haven't seen them in a year or whatever. So it's easy for me to stop through Beirut or go to Beirut first, then go to Dubai I've got another partner in Abu Dhabi and it's easy to get between those two points. Is there another opportunity in that area as well? So I try to stack it. So I kind of build a framework first with sort of one meeting. Once I have two meetings, then I know I have a trip planned. Um, you know, I would never go unless it's like a multi-million dollar opportunity. I really wouldn't go out on the road just for one meeting. 
Okay, and it really sounds like you keep it geographically close, like you're not going to go to Sweden and then go, okay, now I'm going to head down to Dubai. Um, you'll do a clump in that area, come home, recharge, regroup, reset, and then go off to another mm-hmm. geographic area. Yeah, and, and because, of, because I've flown so much, I kind of know routes as well with, with airlines. <laughs> so, you know, again, I, I know I, you know, I'm, I have to connect through here. So that presents another opportunity or, you know, if I'm, you know, going somewhere and I have to connect, connect through London, is there anything in the UK that I can do? So I sort of play that game as well. Um, you know, when I go to Latin America, um, I almost always go to Argentina and Chile. You know, I would never go to Chile yeah. and then come home. I would always combine Argentina and Chile together because it's an easy flight in between Buenos Aires and Santiago. Oh, so, right. So again, it's sort of just thinking kind of along that line, right? So. Well, the, you know, for those of us in Massachusetts, we think, oh, 495 and 95, which am I like going up here going, well, you know, what's close to Frankfurt or London and, you, you know, the route's there. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. I mean, if I'm, if I'm in Paris, then I know, or even if I'm in London, I know I can get to, to Brussels by train. So, so is there, you know, is there, and again, it's, it's cheaper for me to combine that versus to fly home and then make another trip and go there. So, you know, I usually try to go out a minimum a week, a week's time, because again, plane tickets tend to be cheaper with a Saturday night stay. So so I usually try to go out for at least a week's time or get that Saturday night stay in on one end. Um, I tend not to be out longer than two weeks because I just find at this point in my career, I'm just not sharp. (laughs) I hate to say this, but Uh you know, after two weeks, I just lose my edge. And, you know, I find two weeks is maximum I will be out on the road. How much socializing are you doing after the work meetings might happen? Um, you know, dinners, definitely dinners. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of, again, it goes back to that building the relationship. So a lot of times if, if I have the opportunity to have dinner with somebody, I will. Because, again, it's just building that relationship and that trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not everybody's open to that, but I, you know, or sometimes I'll have breakfast meetings. Oh, you um, will. Okay. Yep. Okay. So you're, so it is, you're available for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, depending on what they are. So when you're there, it is working 12 hours, 13 hours, 14 hours in a spot. Yeah, it could be for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Now, how... Would you um, look at, or let me start that again. Do you think that the different cultures influence how people make a purchasing decision? Yes. Tell me more. So, you know, um, the Middle East, it's a bargaining culture. Um, So you have to be prepared not to throw out your lowest price right away because they're going to come back and they're going to ask for more. So you have to kind of like, it's part of the culture and, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. Um, and each, you know, you can't lump every country the same. Mm-hmm. Each culture has its own nuances that you kind of have to be keyed into. And, you know, I'm, I, the Middle East comes to mind just because I know it's a bargaining culture. Um, but sometimes again, it's just spending time um, in a country or with a partner and kind of understanding what the hot points are or what it's reading them and just kind of understanding, um, you know, what, what moves them, what doesn't move them. And that's going to come with time. So when I was with my kids down in Mexico, they became master negotiators. <laughs> they were these little blonde hair boys negotiating with the, the stores and they got a real kick out of it and they understood it. And so, you know, they can bring that forward. So I think of, a lot of the Latin American, I mean, it was Mexico, Panama, Peru, they were negotiating in all those countries. I, I think of all of them as negotiating, but the Middle East, it is a bargaining culture. Is your, when you're doing your negotiations, are, are they different? Do you have to have a different negotiation and bargaining style? Or do you think there's negotiating or bargaining countries versus non-bargaining countries? I think you always have to be aware of your kind of your line in the sand, no matter what Mm -hmm. culture you're dealing with. 
Um, I think there's always, and, and this is in particular to the culture of a small company, you're very hesitant in saying no to anything. Right. You want to say, you want to say yes to everything. That's a small company culture. And it's a salesperson <laughs> culture too. <laughs> and, and, you know, sometimes it's not good business. Sometimes you have to say no. Right. And that's a hard lesson to learn. That's a really hard lesson to learn. So at some point you just kind of have to understand what your line in the sand is and you have to say no. Mm -hmm. And don't be afraid to say no. Right. Well, as my kids learn, sometimes you can say no, turn around or walk away. You get about five steps away and okay, okay, <laughs> we'll do it your way. All right, so let's, uh, we're coming up to the end of our time, but I wanted to get to know you a little bit better. Um, first off, I got to ask, what's your favorite foreign word? Um, okay, so this goes back to my Arabic heritage, my Lebanese heritage. So there is an Arabic word, yalla, which means, translates as, yes, let's go. Come on, let's go. Yalla. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I, I still hear my mother saying it. And, you know, but it's, it's sort of like, it, it just embodies like energy to me. <laughs> so, it's great. So that's, I guess that's probably my favorite foreign word yalla <laughs> yalla how would you spell that in english letters um it's y i guess it would be spelled y a double l a okay okay with an, exclam with an exclamation point yeah <laughs> <laughs> yalla <laughs> it reminds me of spanish we lived in mexico for first and second grade when i was in first and second grade and vamanos was like come on let's go so my parents all through growing up even when we back, lived back in the united states vamanos <laughs> exactly exactly and it, and it, and it kind of embodies that same feeling like you know the sense of urgency right yeah yeah and it's going to be something exciting yellow <laughs> i love that how about your favorite vacation oh that that's a really hard one for me because i've done some um i tend to be i guess what's the way to capture i tend to be an adventure traveler yes so i go believe it or not my vacations i go off the beaten path um, so I have done an expedition to Antarctica <gasps> and, cool. and, um, I got bit by the polar thing. So I, uh, two years after I did Antarctica, I did the, I did the Arctic. I came within 500 miles of the North pole. Um, so I really like off the beaten path places. Um, and, um, I've, it's hard to put, <laughs> it's hard to nail one of them down. I used to do also do a lot of motorcycle touring around the world. Um, so I've ridden a motorcycle in some really great, crazy parts of the world as well. Um, so it's really hard to nail it down. <laughs> I love Africa. So I've done several safaris um, and I've taken up in the last several years, I've taken off photography, taken up photography. So now I'm, it's about capturing amazing images of wildlife and that's what I go for now. So. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really hard to say. There's, there are probably two spots in the world that just really speak to me. Um, South Georgia Island in the South Atlantic um, is probably one of the most pristine wildlife places I've ever been. Um, and that's a sub-Antarctic. It's a sub-Antarctic island. So it's on the way to Antarctica. And it's just simply amazing. Um, and um, I did do Svalbard a couple years ago. Which you did is what? A, I did Svalbard. Oh, I've never heard of that. So it's an archipelago that sits um, between the to very top of Norway, between the top of Norway and the North Pole. And it's a group of islands and it has the highest concentration of polar bears anywhere <gasps> on Earth. So I did an expedition there a couple years ago and that those two places really spoke to me. But I love Africa too, so it's hard <laughs> to say. <laughs> You've done a lot of cold weather countries. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of got this polar obsession. That is so cool. Well, that, that is some of the most interesting vacations I've heard. Yeah, I'd love to see your pictures sometime. And how about your most rewarding cross-cultural experience? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, oh. Or most unusual. <laughs> 
Oh, that's a really, uh, so I, I haven't been to Saudi Arabia in a long time, but I'd have to say the first time I went to Saudi Arabia was um, definitely sort of um, interesting. Um, probably one of the most interesting cross-cultural things just because it, it is very different. Um, that's the only thing that comes to mind, I would say. <laughs> well, that's Sorry. good. Tell me, tell me more about that. So you land in Saudi Arabia and you've come in from the United States and what hit you? Was it smells, sounds, women and men? You know? I think, I think, um, you know, it's, I think it's relaxed quite a bit now, but you know, before, yeah. um, going into Saudi Arabia, you would have to, um, put on a, uh, Punjabi. Not a, um, the hijab is the headscarf, but the, yeah. uh, I can't remember the, the dressing. Um, uh, my old age is coming to me now. Um, so you'd have to cover up basically. And before you either, either get off the plane or in the airport, you'd have to cover up before you went out. Um, you know, you couldn't, um, you couldn't sit in the front seat. You'd have to sit in the back seat. You couldn't, you know, there's just a lot of really weird um, things that we're not used to. And again, you know, you want to be respectful and you want to, um, you know, just be aware that um, things could be very different in certain parts of the world. Um, I remember sort of a, it's almost was like a culture shock. You know, you go into the hotel and, you know, we're so used to seeing, you know, kind of women working everywhere in Saudi Arabia, women don't work everywhere. So everybody at the front hotel staff is all men. And it's sort of, it, you know, I think it's changed now because again, I haven't been there in quite some time. Um, but you know, I think that was sort of an initial culture shock and it wasn't, and I'm a very independent person mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's not, it wasn't a place where I could just get up and go walk the streets and go to the, you know, go down to the street to go to the shop or do something. So I think, you know, that to me was very limiting. So it was really, I guess, from a, um, a cultural perspective, it was for me personally, it was difficult. Um, just because I couldn't move freely like I normally do. Did you feel in danger? No, never. Okay. It was just different. And so you uh, adapted to be respectful, but it wasn't, you didn't feel like you'd put yourself in danger by not following the customs. No, no. I mean, it's, you know, I, I kind of had enough knowledge um, and prep. I, you know, somebody had told me, you know, when you get to the airport, they're probably going to pull you out of the line and, you know, treat you separately. And they did, they pulled me out of line. They put me in a room, they took my passport and I just sat there and I thought, okay, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they eventually gave me my passport back and said, said I could go, but it, you know, I mean, I think it's a little unnerving when you kind of like sit there and you're kind of thinking, well, I hope this turns out. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't have a feeling that there's much that you feel in danger about. You're quite the risk taker and independent. Um, yeah, I, I mean, calculated risk taker, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. How about any final recommendations for anybody who's thinking about doing international business? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I would tell people, you know, there is a world of opportunity out there, no pun intended. Um, it, it's not a quick sale. Um, you have to be in it for the long run. Um, you know, and, and stick with it and, you know, do take your time, you know, don't jump in um, head first, you know, take baby steps. Maybe, you know, maybe even just look at markets like Canada or Mexico you know, something that's close by. You don't have to go halfway around the world and pick markets that make sense. You know, do your research. Is there a market for your product? Um, you know, we're blessed with this thing called the internet. There's a lot of things, a lot of research that you can do on your own. Um, you know, don't, you know, don't try to tackle a market that seems too difficult. You know, pivot and go to a market that maybe is a little easier, like Canada or like Mexico. Um, you know, don't, don't pick Azerbaijan as your first market. You know, it's just, <laughs> Unless you know, you're from there. <laughs> you know, unless there's an incredible demand for your product, then you're going to want to go there. But, you know, try to find, try to find the market that's going to give you the easy entry. And then, you know, mm -hmm. just focus on that market and then leverage that market into the next market and you'll build your international that way. 
don't try to take on the world at once. It doesn't work. Oh, that is such, such excellent advice. Where can people find you if they want to learn more or get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can find me at Optum, and um, my email address there is gpreston, P-R-E-S-T-O-N, at Optum, O-P-T-I-M, dash, L-L-C, dot com. Excellent. Are you on any social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, or? I am on LinkedIn. Um, I don't use my Twitter very much, but if you want to see great pictures of crazy animals around the world, my Instagram is um, M Grace Preston. So my first name is actually Mary. I don't use it. So I use the initial M, M Grace Preston. On Instagram. Okay. And that's where I could go see your pictures. I am so heading there to check those out. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Grace, for coming on the show today. It's been such, such fabulous information of getting into the details about how to do international sales. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Wendy. Thanks so much. And and thanks for Poor International for having me. Um, It's been a lot of fun. Um, You know, I just encourage everybody to get out there. Don't be afraid of it. Yes, don't be afraid. Well, thank you listeners for coming uh, today to hear Grace's story. If you learned something today or you had a laugh, tell somebody about this podcast and follow it to make sure that you hear the episodes of the next one. Um, And reach out. Let us know what you think or if you have ideas for other guests that you'd like to see. Thanks so much. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.